and uh, spend our time there for a while. Still want to get into Amos, but I just really want to spend some time in Hebrews. I hope Second Timothy has been a challenging study for you. It is a short book that is intense. It's powerful. La- Paul's last communication to this young man, Timothy, who is a pastor, attempting to minister to a congregation. Not just a letter written, though, to the, congreg- to the, to the pastor, though, as we've talked about before, but through the pastor to be ministered to, to the congregation, to the faithful ones who will minister to others also. The message is a message given to Timothy that is being passed on in the midst of opposition, rejection, and all the rest that comes along with it. Paul is talking to a young man, Timothy, who is ministering to a church that's just starting a downward slide. And Paul tells him that the church is basically just going to get worse. Kind of an interesting message, isn't it? We would not describe that as necessarily an encouraging message. Kind of like Isaiah, isn't it? I want you to go and preach repentance and no one's going to repent. I'm just going to use that as a tool so that I can judge them. So your ministry is not going to be a fruitful ministry from man's perspective, Isaiah, but it will be fruitful because it's going to accomplish my task. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy that the, in the last days difficult times will come, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. They will come in the church. Difficult times will come when the people of the church will not stand sound doctrine, sound teaching. They will reject the truth. They will turn aside. They will have a form of godliness but deny its power. And in Paul's time frame, this last times was here then, as evidenced by the churches in Asia that are living out exactly what he's talking about in 2 Timothy. And he lists a number of other people that are living that out as well. Yet there are some who are standing firm, standing with the truth, standing with Jesus. And Paul's call to Timothy and to the faithful ones who are being taught by him and the ones who are being taught beyond Timothy and his faithful ones out to today through the book of 2 Timothy. is the same theme. It is a theme that the church is going to struggle. The church is going to have people in them who are going to have a form of godliness but deny its power. The church is going to find itself wandering from the truth. The church is going to, in effect, begin to generate its own truth. It will have a glimpse, a sniff of the truth, It will have aspects, but it will reject large swaths of the truth. Now, I I just want to say this. I've said this many times before. Please don't fall into the trap of of starting to think outside of us. It's really important that the listener to the book, 2 Timothy, doesn't think about out there at the other churches, but thinks about it from the perspective of our church, because that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Paul's not telling Timothy only that the church age is going to have a problem 
and is having a problem with it. He's not just saying that, that these other people where he is is having those problems. He's telling Timothy the problem's there as well. And Timothy needs to be aware of that. And those he's teaching need to be aware of that. And Paul says to Timothy that things are going to get so stark and so difficult that even if everybody else in the church turns aside to merely a form of godliness that denies its power, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you, however, cling to what you've learned and become firmly convinced of. Even if everybody else wavers, Timothy, cling firmly to it. And if you don't remember what that means, I'd encourage you to read through 2 Timothy once again. The whole entirety of the four chapters. Doesn't take long to read, but read thoughtfully through. To be reminded, because it's very easy to be to, to be self-deceived into thinking we're standing firm when we're not. That we're clinging to the truth when we're not. So I would challenge you and encourage you again as we're wrapping up 2 Timothy and moving on, that you ask yourself, am I a firm clinger or am I not? Or am I more of a church of age or am I more of a having a form of godliness but denying its power? We have actually worked our way all the way through chapter 422, but we're going to jump back to a section of verses that I skipped, verses 17 and 18 for today. I skipped them on purpose because I wanted to conclude with 17 and 18. We're actually going to fold in a verse that we already looked at, verse 16, firstly, to give it its context, because as we know, context is king. But before we look at the text itself, I need to ask you a question. And here's the question. It's a simple question. And the simple question is this. What do you fear? I'm going to ask it in a variety of different ways, but what do you fear? Another way to ask the question is this. And it's important that you answer the questions. Don't just hear the questions. Answer them. What do you fear? Now, I'm not talking about well, I fear zombies. Well, maybe I should be asking that question if you do. No, um, <coughs> no, but seriously, it's not I fear fire or I fear drowning or I fear maybe, but or I fear um, freezing to death or or um, I fear small places. That's not what we're talking about. The question is, what do you fear? that holds you back from having a real relationship with Jesus. A vibrant, powerful, life-altering, paradigm-shifting relationship with Jesus. Now, I ask the question, not, and it's not an accusatory question. I'm not asking the question because I'm accusing you of being that. You may very well be someone who sits here this morning saying, well, no, nothing holds me back, Steve. I just love Jesus. I love hanging out with Jesus. I love ministering to Jesus. I like ministering to the lost. I love ministering to, to save people. I love reading the scriptures. I love praying. I, I, I just, and I fail all the time because, because I'm a sinner. I understand that, and I repent. I love rushing back to the cross and repenting, but my life is Christ, and I just am enthralled with Jesus. 
That may be you. But because I know what Paul says to Timothy, that, that the church is not typically going to be that way, I think it's important that we ask the question, what do you fear? What holds you back from a vibrant relationship with Jesus? Powerful, life-consuming relationship with Jesus. Looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, starting at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. We already talked about the passage. I'm just going to remind you. Once Paul arrived in Rome as a prisoner, he would be drugged in front of the court. And being drugged in front of the court, it would be for his first of a series of court cases. And in the first series of the court cases, the first thing that usually takes place in the Roman Roman courts is that you would give your defense. And when you give your defense, after you were completed, then you completed your defense, then you would bring forward all of the the witnesses that would give testimony to the quality of your character and, and or why what you are accused of cannot be true. And so usually there would be an avalanche of people who would come forward and give testimony. Paul says in verse 16 that no one came. He got up and he gave his testimony. And if you could picture it, after he gave his testimony, if again, just I'm not saying this is exactly how it happened, but if you can imagine it, the judge would have said, is there anyone here who would be wanting to give witness, testimony, to either his character or to the reality that what he's being accused of isn't true? And Paul's standing there in the witness stand, perhaps, and he turns around and looks at the crowd, because many people would go to these court cases. Oftentimes they were out in the open air. He would turn around and he'd look, and no one raises their hand. No one stands up. No one steps forward. And in fact, as he scans the crowd, he doesn't even recognize a face. No one came. Why? We already said why. Rome had already burned. Christians are accused. And fear kept them away from standing up to the, for the truth. Fear kept them away. That's why. Why would fear keep someone from standing up for Paul? Well, the answer is kind of obvious. Who wants to die? Right? Who wants to go to prison? Right? Who wants to be beaten? Who wants to be flogged? Who wants to suffer? And the obvious answer is no one. And you know what's wild about that? The obvious answer is no one. And yet, 
the obvious answer to Paul is I will. Do you see the contrast? The obvious answer for Paul when you ask the question, who wants to suffer? It's not that he's got some sort of screw loose. He loves Jesus. Who's willing to go to prison? Who's willing to be flogged? Who's willing to be rejected? Who's willing to be mocked and ridiculed? I can almost see Paul going, Pick me, pick me. Who's willing even to die? Paul. Can I just ask you a quick question? Was that a theme of Paul's life? Can you find any example anywhere in the scriptures, anywhere in the New Testament where Paul wavered from that? No, it's not there. For Paul, if he was facing the potential for imprisonment, he's like, okay. If he was facing the, the potential for abuse, okay. If he's facing the potential for rejection, that's fine. If he's facing the potential for ridicule, okay. Death, no problem. What's the difference? The most obvious is nobody wants to do that. Nobody's willing to do that. It's not worth it. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. That's the most obvious always. It's the natural response. Isn't it? It's the natural response. But for Paul, because of the love of Christ for him and his love as a result, for Christ, it wasn't about the natural response, was it? It was about the supernatural response. For Paul, his starting point was Jesus. And as a result of the starting point, Jesus, the concluding point, or the concluding decision was Jesus. When he was looking to Jesus, he recognized that Jesus did what? He suffered. And he died. And he suffered with Paul's sins. And so for Paul, the idea of suffering for Christ was an honor and a privilege. which folds all the way back to our question, what do we fear, or what holds us back? It's a very important question. What holds you back from ridicule? What holds you back from rejection? What holds you back from suffering? What holds you back from being marginalized? Maybe even persecution. What holds you back? What holds you back from the fear of, or what holds you back from being willing to be alone? What holds you back from a 
willingness to not have any shame. back from a willingness to being mocked and ridiculed, identified as it were with Christ. It's an interesting set of questions because Paul's perspective at his first offense again, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. Paul's concern for them is that they repent. Those who didn't stand. They would repent and love Christ. then what happens next in 17 and 18 is dramatic because the answer to your fear and the answer to my fear is what we find here. So what we saw in verse 16 is the idea that the answer is repentance. The hope is turning back to Jesus, right? That's 17. Our hope is to turn back to Jesus and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame. There it is, right? If we're looking to the one who endured the cross and despised the shame, we will find ourselves enduring our cross and despising its shame as well. And more importantly, enduring the cross of Christ and enduring the one who went through, enduring that ridicule and mockery that was towards him and will be turned towards us. What happens next in verse 17, and I hope you'll find in the midst of this, this book that is hard to hear because it forces us to examine ourselves. It's hard to hear because it's a, it's a call to a life perhaps of loneliness. It's a call to a life of rejection. It's a call to a life of persecution. It's a call to a life of, of ridicule and mockery marginalization. It is also a call to Jesus, the lover of our soul. And what Paul says in 17 and 18 is so beautiful, and I hope you find it encouraging in the midst of all the challenge of 2 Timothy. It's so encouraging because this is the reality of that life. It's the reality of the, of the life of persecution, of mockery, of ridicule, of loneliness, of marginalization, of persecution. What is it? Verse 17 and 18, Paul says this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's an amazing text, 17 and 18. Everybody leaves him. Everybody rejects him. Nobody defends him. He's in prison wrongfully. He's been beaten. He's been mistreated. He's been shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake. And on and on and on. Nobody stands, but all deserted me. Ah, but Paul says in verse 17, but there was one who did not desert me. And for Paul, that made all the difference. 
what I want you to do is I want you to hear Paul's testimony here in this text of life in the persecution unit. Of life in the imprisonment lane. Of life in the mockery lane. In, of life in the rejection lane. Life in the ridicule lane. Life in the alone lane. Here's what Paul describes that life. How Paul describes that life. Hear it. And consider it. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Everybody else turned away. And by the way, that's what Paul's telling Timothy is going to happen to him. Everybody turned away. Paul tells Timothy, but you cling to it anyway. Even if everybody else wanted to stay, you cling to it. Even though there's a point in time when it's going to come where no one will endure sound doctrine. You preach sound doctrine. That's what he says. And you know what? Here's the most amazing thing. With Paul, the Lord stood by him and strengthened him. And Paul's telling Timothy, for you, in effect, the Lord, because he's a faithful God, will stand by you and strengthen you. As you face these difficult times, Timothy, as you face them, and they're going to be tough, they're going to be hard, because you're going to preach a rejected message. From the moment you open your mouth to preach, Timothy, people in your church will reject it. As a matter of fact, for all intents and purposes, before you even come and start speaking, people have already rejected it, evidently. Because they'll be living something contrary. And when it's over, they'll still be living something contrary. There will be no repentance. But you cling to it. And Timothy, be encouraged. Be absolutely encouraged with this. Even though you're preaching a message of exhortation, rebuke, be encouraged. Just like it was with me, the Lord will stand by you and strengthen you. The Lord stood by me in the darkest of my times. There was no more dark time than this. And there really wasn't for Paul. Every other time there were Christians there. Many of them. This time was harder. This time was more scary, fearful, full of potential for fear. And what does he say in the midst of it all? Here's what I found. The Lord stood by me. That's Timothy. What does that mean? The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. It, mean, it meant this. In the midst of all the potential and the real persecution, imprisonment, mockery, ridicule, loneliness, and all the rest, he strengthened me for something. And it wasn't merely to endure it. It wasn't merely to suffer well. 
It wasn't merely to be able to just bear up under it, so to speak. It was something much greater than that. The Lord, in the midst of this, strengthened him. He stood with him and strengthened him. Why did he stand with him? Because he promised never to what? Leave us nor forsake us. And Paul's saying what he promised is real. Take it to the bank, Timothy. When your first thought is if I take the next step, I'm going to be persecuted. If I take the next step, I'm going to be hated. If I take the next step and say the next words that are in my mind, I'm going to be ridiculed and mocked and marginalized. I'm going to be alone. Paul says to Timothy, remember this in effect. It's real because Jesus promised it. He'll stand by you. He will. And he'll strengthen you. To what? To what end? See, too often we think he strengthens us to get, get just get by us. No. To what end? Well, to what end is important. We've got to answer the question. To what end? What's he doing with Paul? Why is he standing by him where everyone else left him? Why is he standing by him and why is he strengthening him? For what purpose? Well, the text tells us. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that, here's the purpose, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. You see, the reason why he stands by Paul and the reason why he strengthened Paul is because he saved him for a purpose. He saved him for a purpose. Well, what's the purpose? It's the same purpose he saved you for. It's the same purpose he saved me for. So that through us, because God uses means, through us the gospel will be proclaimed both to save people and to unsave people. For Timothy, it's primarily to save people. To Paul, it was primarily to unsave people. And I say primarily because it was Paul ministered to save people as well, and Timothy ministered to unsave people as well. But he saves us for a purpose. It's a kingdom purpose. He didn't save us just so we could go to heaven. What an absolute lie that is. Do we go to heaven? Yes. That's not what he saved us for. He saved us to be proclaimers, to be kingdom people. That's why the prayer again is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He stood by Paul and strengthened him for what purpose? Let me help just skin it out a little bit. So that Paul, even though there's no one who's standing by him, Christ is, so as a result, on that day when he's standing there giving a defense of himself and no one's there to support him, but there's tons of people there. Paul did what? This is crazy, friends. We don't have the transcript of what he said. If I was a betting man, I'd put my entire worth on it. On Paul's defense, I will guarantee you, Paul didn't defend himself. This is a time for his defense. He 
Paul didn't defend himself. You know what Paul did? Paul got up and pulled a Peter in a repentance. Paul got up and preached Christ and him crucified. That's what he did. Now we have evidence of that. For example, in Acts 20, what is it, 25, is it? 24? No, 22. Acts 22. When Paul was brought to the steps of the temple and the accusations are presented about him and the throngs of people are down below the steps crying out for him to be destroyed. And he stands there in chains and he looks at the crowd and it's a prime example or a prime time for him to stand on his feet. And what does he do? He preaches Christ. You're going to bring all these crowds to me? I'm going to preach Christ. That's what he does. And Paul is talking here to Timothy, and he's saying, right after he said, <coughs> but you cling to what you've learned and what you've become convinced of, referring to the scriptures, no matter what anybody else does, you do that, and then in light of clinging to it, preach the word, be after it in season and out of season, reprove, rebu rebuke with great patience and long-suffering, and patience, yeah, patience and long-suffering, because there's going to come a time when they're not going to endure that, and I know Paul, I know Timothy, because I'm at that point myself. They all left me. They're not enduring sound teaching. If they were enduring sound teaching, they would what? They'd have been there. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, I want you to know the most amazing thing. The Lord stood by me. Strengthened me. He gave me what I could not innately and naturally have. Naturally, I would have feared. Naturally, I would have cowered, I would have begged. Naturally, I would have perhaps deflected or minimized. Naturally, I would have tried to escape. Naturally, I would have looked for other alternatives. But the Lord stood by me. He strengthened me. And the implication, Timothy, he's doing the same for you. Cling to what you know, what you become convinced of. The Lord will stay with you. He will strengthen you, and the result will be what it was with me. What it was with me is that God, by his sovereign design, brought thousands to hear me preach, and I preached. And the Gentiles. Oh, could it have killed me? Yeah, it could have. But my goodness, what an opportunity. And Timothy, you can take it to the bank. And all the ones that you're teaching, Timothy, they could take it to the bank. That's what the Lord does. He stands by you. He stands by you. And oh, he just loves you. There's evidence of this throughout the scriptures, isn't it? We talked about Paul already. What about Silas when he was with Paul, right? You've got John, oiled in oil. Just keep on 
rotational work, right? Just even. You have all the Old Testament prophets. Everywhere you look, you see it, don't you? In every case, what did the Lord do? The Lord stood by them. He strengthened them. That's who the Lord is. You see, the reason why we fear is because we believe lies. We either believe lies that these things we're fearing are more powerful than Christ. Otherwise, we wouldn't fear them, by the way. Otherwise, we wouldn't. That our neighbor is more powerful than Christ. That's why we don't tell him about Jesus. For example. See, we believe that lie. Or we just absolutely marginalize Jesus. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through the message, or through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It goes on in verse 17 and says, So I was rescued from the madness. So I was rescued. He didn't die. He didn't, not that time. He will, but he didn't that time. He was rescued from the lion's mouth. His confidence is in the rescuer. He didn't say, I rescued myself. I was rescued. He said, I stood for what I believed and was convinced of. I was rescued. Then he goes on to 18 and gives a little lesson. He says, the Lord will rescue me, and by implication, anyone who trusts in him, anyone. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul talking about? He can't be talking about what you think he's talking about. Can't be. Because he says, he will rescue me from every evil deed. How many times was Paul in prison? How many times was he beaten? How many times was he stoned? How many times was he, rescu- was he ridiculed? How many times was he marginalized? How many times was he rejected? How many times was he, was he persecuted? It was constant as a believer, wasn't it? It was constant. So what Paul says here, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, is not talking about those things we think he's talking about. It's something much bigger than that. Go back to Genesis chapter 50. You don't need to turn there. The Lord would rescue Joseph from every evil deed. Same idea. Right? But wait a second. Did Joseph ever experience any evil deeds? Well, constantly. I mean, my goodness. At 12 or 13 years old, his brothers threw him in a pit after beating him. 
That sounds like an evil deed, doesn't it? And then they lied to their dad that he was dead. Sounds like an evil deed and caused him not to be rescued. And then he was sold into slavery. Sounds like an evil deed. And then once he was in slavery, he got accused falsely twice. And was thrown in prison. Sounds like evil deeds. People promised to remember him and didn't. Sounds like evil deeds. Doesn't it? That was his life. That was his M.O. But in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph speaks to his brothers who are lying to him once again. They're doing evil once again. Our father, before he died, told us to tell you there's no evidence at all of your father's like this. Not to treat us badly in Joseph's life. And he looks at them and says, you don't get it. What you did to me, you meant for evil. But God meant it for Paul says, I will rescue. God promises he will rescue me from every evil deed. He will do this. And by implication, Timothy, you need to understand, you need to wrap your mind around this reality as you cling to what you've, you've believed, what you've become firmly convinced of, that that God who gave you those words will rescue you from every evil deed. faith in death. What he means by that is not that he will have the wonderful life that's been amazing and pain-free. Lots of friends. Nobody hates you. Nobody despises you. Nobody rejects you. And that everybody calls and invites you to their party. That's not what he's talking about. His rescue means that he's going to take what others mean for evil and it's going to be good. That's what it means. So for Paul, he can write confidently in Philippians chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that the things that have happened to me have rather been the best things that possibly could have happened. Wait, Paul, what are you talking about? Your beatings and your imprisonment? Yes! Those things exactly are the best things that could have happened to me. They meant it for evil, God means it for good, and look at what has happened. As a result of my imprisonment, first of all, everybody else is starting to preach the gospel. Whereas before, it was just me. Secondly, as a result of my imprisonment, I've been able to minister to the Praetorian Guard and tell them about Jesus, and some of them gotten saved. That sounds like a rescue to me. You know why? You know why that's a rescue? You know why imprisonment for Paul is a rescue? Here's the reason why. Because God saved Paul for a purpose. That's why. God saved Paul for a purpose. And he saved Timothy for a purpose. And if you're a believer, he saved you for a purpose. And so what he is doing in the saved life that you and I are in, it's for a purpose. 
And as a result of that, no evil can befall you, if I use a King James word. Because any evil that comes upon you, your friends reject you because you tell them about Jesus. Your neighbors turn their back on you because you tell them about Jesus. Your co-workers mock you and ridicule you and don't invite you out to parties anymore because you told them about Jesus. Your friends you recreate with no longer are interested in recreating with you because you tell them about Jesus. You meant it for evil. God means it for good. What's happening? People are hearing about Jesus. And that's why you were saved. That's why. Maybe people in your church reject you because you're telling them about Jesus and you're challenging about Jesus. Notice Paul didn't say in this text, and this is really radical, Paul didn't say any of these Gentiles got saved. Did he? Does it say there in the text? Look in the text, 17 and 18. Does it say any of them got saved? No. What does it say? No, look at it more closely. Gave an opportunity to proclaim, yes, but what does it say specifically? What? They heard it. They heard it. Maybe nobody got saved. I, I wonder if maybe not one of these people who heard it got saved. For Paul, it wasn't about the salvation. It was about the hearing. They heard the gospel. You were saved for a purpose. I was saved for a purpose. Paul is recognizing that he's destroying because it's the love of Christ in him is destroying fear. Destroying it. What he's saying here in 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. He's saying there's no possibility that any deed could come upon me that's going to thwart Christ. There's no possibility that any evil thing could come upon me that could thwart the gospel. It is impossible for any evil deed to come upon me that will have no way of being Christ and Him crucified-centered. Because Christ stands by me and strengthens me. And then ultimately, He says, and bring me safely into His kingly heaven. And heavenly kingdom. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So it's both here and now and in the future. Could I just say this real quickly? This is mostly an encouragement, this text. But there's a little exhortation here as well. It's a hint of exhortation I want to give you real quickly before we get back to it. The hint of exhortation is this. Because the conjunction and is here, not or. Words are important. It's and which ties the two together. Some of you are probably already starting to think about schoolhouse rock, but anyway. It brings them together. It connects them together. And the implication is, 
one cannot exist without the other. Do you realize that? One does not exist alone. The and links them inexorably together. Either both are true or neither are true for me and for you. That's the exhortation of it. And we saw this earlier. Verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, to me, but also to, to the, all those who have what? Loved his appearing. If you haven't loved his appearing, no crown of righteousness. See, it's the same idea. This is just skinned out a little bit more in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. If I am controlled and driven by and, and ruled by fear so that I am not one who is proclaiming. See, that's the idea of the text. I can't bank on the idea that he'll bring me safely home. I can't. And think about it. If, if you just think about it, it makes sense. If I don't believe, this is where it gets really weird. For, uh, Christianity gets really weird. If I don't believe he will stand by me, okay, and strengthen me, how can I possibly believe he'll get me home to glory? Does that make sense? So if I live my life in effect, I w although we would never say it with words, but if I live my life functionally speaking as if Christ isn't standing by me and strengthen me to proclaim, right? To proclaim him, the gospel, if I'm living life as if he's not there, and as if he doesn't strengthen me so and it's demonstrated by me not proclaiming the truth, it's incoherent to think he has the strength to get me home. doesn't make any sense. At all. But if he does stand by me and strengthen me, you know what happens? I proclaim him. That's what happens. This is not Paul's doing. This is not Paul's skill. This is not Paul's, yeah, look what I did. If he's standing by me and strengthening me, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to proclaim. How can I but proclaim? Right? Same with Stephen. It's not that Stephen was such a great orator. It's not that Stephen was so skilled and and he just loved preaching the truth. We basically know nothing about Stephen. But the scripture story of Acts 6 and 7 starts out by saying Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. 
Lord stood by him. He strengthened him. And even though he knew he was going to die, he did what? He couldn't help but plead. Jeremiah couldn't help it. It was like a fire in his bones. Priest. Why was it like a fire in his bones? Because the Lord stood by him. Why was it, why was it, why did he preach? Because the Lord strengthened him. Moses, the one with the stammering tongue. He went and spoke to the most powerful man in the world. Called him out. Didn't he? Called him out. How could he do that? The guy with the stammering tongue. How could he do it? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us because he considered the riches of Christ far greater than the, all the riches of Egypt. Where'd that come from? How could he have considered the riches of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt? That's a really valid question, isn't it? You know what the, ultimately what the answer is? Because the Lord stood by him. He strengthened him. How could Abram, who one second was a moon worshiper and the very next second was saved and knew almost nothing about God and the Redeemer? Almost nothing. And God speaks to him and says, leave where you are and go to the land that I'll show you. Put one foot in front of the other. Leave your family, your friends, except for your wife and a couple other people. And go. And Abram went. Really? How's that possible? Because the Lord stood by him. He strengthened him. It's the only common denominator. That's it. That is it. How is it possible that the Jews could go in, the Hebrew people could go in and take over all the, or a lot of the land that of promise? How is it possible? <laughs> no, no place better shown probably than Jericho. How is it possible? Because the Lord stood by them, strengthened them. How is it possible? Because the Lord caused the sun to stand still. The hail. He stood by them, strengthened them. We go on and on and on with the examples. But for us to say, functionally speaking, that the Lord is not standing by me and strengthening me, Ergo, I don't preach. I don't proclaim. Is to say, I love a form of godliness that denies power. That's what it means. I love tapping into some of the perks. But that's all I want.
he's not enduring sound doctrine. For what Paul says, quite the contrary, this one thing I know, the Lord did stand by me, Timothy. He did. And he strengthened me. So that all the Gentiles there in that area heard the gospel. They heard it. And I know this too. That God will protect me, will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me home safely. He wraps it all up with such a powerful statement. He says, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's, he's dwelling on Christ. He's seeking Christ. He's remembering Christ. He's trusting Christ. <coughs> he's fellowshipping with Christ. He knows Christ. And so as a result, as he looks backwards and looks forward, he says, to him be glory forever, amen. That might, in effect, you know what Paul's saying? It's almost like he's giving his obituary here. He's saying this. My life has been and will be for joy. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. That would present to you that that's life with Christ. That's what life with Christ looks like. God promises never to leave us nor forsake us. The love of Christ will never be removed if we're His. So I want to remind you, He saved you and I for a purpose. And it's for His glory. And for Paul, that's all that matters. Why? How is it possible that for Paul, that's all that matters? And too often for most Christians in the last day churches, the glory of Christ doesn't matter a whole lot. Well, there's little splurts of it here and there, right? Flashes of it here and there. But it's not to him be glory forever and ever, amen. I would present to you it's because we are believing lies. Because we're believing a Christ that that's not the Christ of the scriptures. They were picking and choosing. And that really, it's a theology that's a patently anti-Christian theology that will actually torment you theologically. So could I encourage you with this? He is a good God. He's a gloriously good God. And when he saves, he saves completely. And when he saves completely, he stands by us. And when he stands by us, he strengthens us. And boy, if his strength is at all what the scriptures say it is,
it is strength that spoke this world into existence. It's the strength that protected Joseph. It's the strength that caused Homer heads to float. It's the strength that gave an old man Elijah to bury a 12,450 bread prophet. It's the strength that caused what's his name? Um, Caleb, when he was an 80 some year old man, to wipe out a bunch of It's the strength that will resurrect us from the dead. That's the strength I'm soaking here now. Should I exhort you? Should I tell that guy to run? Don't tell that guy to run. Because you tell the strength down the river, you're telling Jesus down the river. that the Gentiles will hear the gospel and perhaps perhaps they will be saved. Perhaps. In Acts chapter 2 a boatload of them were. In 2 Timothy 4 I don't think any were. In other cases only one or two. And in many cases Christians are shrinking. As Timothy was ministering to faithful men because Christ stood by him, those faithful men were growing in Christ. Growing in understanding of the strength that is in Christ and the one that stands in their place. So can I just encourage you to prayerfully consider Christ in this way? To prayerfully consider the one who prayerfully consider the one who is ultimately faithful. And he will protect you from every evil deed. Nothing will keep you from the heavenly kingdom. Certainly your friends who reject you will not. And certainly your co-workers who reject you will not. And certainly those you recreate with who reject you will not. And certainly your loved ones who reject you will not. And by the way, I want to remind you, they're not ultimately rejecting you. In every category, they're rejecting you. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we are people who too long have feared who have feared what would happen 
if we stand up and be known to Jesus and proclaim the gospel. Too often we have cowered like Peter and we were, and we were arrested. For far too long, So, Lord, I ask you to change us so we will be like Peter in Acts chapter 2. So we will be like Paul in 2 Timothy. That we will know you as you are known, as you are. And that we will remember so often may never lead us into safety. And so, Lord, I pray you would help us. Strengthen us as you promised to do. Strengthen us for the purpose that you saved us for. That we would proclaim you. And Lord, I pray that you will again fulfill your promise to protect us from every